three in the morning when you're hungry and you're tired and you're on a mountain and there was like people, hella people because it's a pilgrimage and you want to give up and you look down and you're like, nah, <laughs> I'm not going that way. I can't go that way. That's kind of how life is when you're a poor kid. It's like, I know what that is. I'm not going back there. So all I can do is climb. I talk about that in building a company. All I could do, I wanted to give up so bad. And all I could do was look down at my feet and literally say left, right. This is Get Shit Done, a podcast that dives into how women entrepreneurs are gaining traction and growing companies that scale generational impact. Each episode is real talk from women founders who have successfully scaled companies. You'll learn what they did to grow, how they did it, and the tools they used to get it done so you can too. To get access to more episodes of Get Shit Done, along with free traction tools, head on over to shegetshitdone.com. Welcome back to the Get Shit Done podcast, queens and comrades. I'm your host, Alex Batdorf, a.k.a. Chief Get Shit Done Officer. Did you know that women own nearly half of businesses, but we only generate 4% of total business revenues? That's why our motto is fuck 4%. Our goal here every single week is to teach you the traction strategies and tactics with the tools and templates you need to get shit done and grow on your own terms to scale generational impact. Today, we'll be breaking down how Sophia Contreras Stone founder of Indie Tech was able to scale a seven-figure service company that eventually funded and rolled out its own fintech product. So here's why this is hella important. I'm going to paint a little bit of a picture here with some stats because context matters. All right, so here's what we're dealing with. 90% of women-founded companies earn well under 100000 a year. That's a big reason why we have the fuck 4% movement and why it's harder for us to get beyond the 4% metric. And a lot of that has to do with the type of companies we choose. And many women founders start service companies, but that doesn't mean services do not scale. They can absolutely scale. And 40% of Latin-owned businesses are in construction and 20% are in services. Sophia is a proud queer Latina queen. I wanted to bring these stats to your attention because services are one of my favorite types of companies to prepare founders for scale because you learn so much about what you can scale if you're doing it right. That's why we brought Sophia onto the podcast. Her company, Indie Tech, started as a service-based business and transformed into a SaaS consulting management system powered by AI. And it gives their clients access to a custom ecosystem of approved consultants and boutique firms with the right expertise to manage supplier risk, contract deliverables, and project spend in real time. And you'll learn more about who her customers are in a little bit. So here's what we're going to learn from Sophia today, how she built out her service company, how she leaned into what was working to scale the services business to six figures, then to seven figures, how mastering enterprise sales, you already know, sell or die, sell or die, we said it before, that helped her make this move. And she gives you a little bit of a masterclass in how you can do it too. 
also how you can build confidence in selling so you can slay your way to sales. But before we get started, we need support from our tribe, you, yes. To help our team show up and support you on your scaling journey week after week, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Better yet, share it with a friend. This helps you know when episodes drop weekly and tells the algorithms to find more queens and comrades like you that we can support too. Also, if you want our weekly Get Shit Done traction briefings that break down every single episode, that means we give you the key takeaways, free resources, templates, and tools. Head on over to shegashitdone.com slash join so we can slide up in your inbox and help you get it done weekly. But without further ado, Queen Sophia Contreras Stone. Sophia, welcome to Get Shit Done. Thank you. I'm stoked to be here. Amazing. Well, I'm excited for you to be here. Um, especially around the way you're building your company. I think there is so much women will get from this, especially the ones who started with services and figuring out how to scale. But we'll get to that. Um, but the thing that we try to, to start with to get an idea a little bit about you and a little bit of context is taking us back to what you were doing before you started um, your current two companies. Um, who was Sophia? Like, what were you all about? Oof. Uh there's a story, there's a bunch of stories there. I uh, come from a single parent household. Uh, you know, we were broke. We struggled. There's a lot of trauma in my family background. And uh, I left high school early uh, at 18. I did my first two years in community college because we were broke. And then at 18, I took out a hundred grand in student loans and moved to Paris to finish my undergrad, where I focused on international affairs. After that, I moved to Tokyo, lived in Tokyo for five years. Uh, and then I moved to Toronto, where I couldn't get a job with all my experience. And so I had to start from the bottom. I started in sales. Um, my first job, I talk about this, it was 11 years ago, and I made $1,700 before taxes. So wow. <laughs> fortunately, I had commission, but if I miss commission in a month, I literally ate pizza, like a slice of pizza for lunch and dinner um, when I first started. And from there, I just kind of hustled my way uh up in sales, I was recruited into um, uh, a new project at what's called Rogers. It's like our AT&T uh, in their venture group. I was in sales and then I got headhunted into working into a, in a boutique consulting firm. And it was kind of one of those moments where you're like, do I do this or do I not? Like, what's the risk here? because it's a small business, but it gets me close to banking and that's where the money is at. Yeah. And so <laughs> as, as a poor kid, you know, who didn't have a lot of security growing up, there is some comfort in money. And so uh, it was a director title. And I was like, look, I can only fall up from here if it doesn't work out. And okay, that's, how, that's how I got my start in consulting with no real experience in financial services. This is what my favorite thing about people who grew up without much means. 
Um, I will never forget that when I got to undergrad, I never understood what wealth looked like until I went to University of Chicago <laughs> because I mean, I was there on all the scholarships, <laughs> all of them. And, you know, for me, I, I people are like, oh, did you grow? How did you grow up? And I'm just like, I mean, we we're on food stamps at some point. Like, but I never like put it together. Like we were poor. I never thought we were poor. Um, but we definitely had to like, it always gave me perspective of I'm, I am going to make this happen. I'm going to make that happen. Like, period. My family's going to be good. Like, we never going to have to worry about this again. And there's just something about when you can experience what it's like to have nothing, the sky's the limit. That hunger is there. It's, 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 it always is. It's electrifying in a, in a way. It's this weird fear and adrenaline at the same time. It's really hard to explain. 100%. I actually had that same experience um going to the american university of paris with princes and princesses literal princes and princesses and kids that drove lotuses and had birkin bags at 19 you know so it's paris paris fashion week week you get in and it's like the money the bottles of crystal were popping and it's like damn this is a lot different and uh it changed my life it was a good investment from that perspective because I never looked back so I have this story that I tell my team this is a little anecdote uh I lived in Japan but there was another person um who was in my training and they were about to go climb Mount Fuji and so I'm from California and you know a hike is like it's like you go on a hike you get a little sweaty I didn't really realized what it meant to climb a mountain. So so I went and this is me like little ratty kid. I probably had a pair of board shorts on. I had like sneakers that were not even like they were like street shoes. Like they weren't like running shoes or athletic shoes. They were like, you know, suede Nike runners and uh, a hoodie and it was in the middle of summer japan is hella hot so it was like 45 degrees or something like that uh but it's climbing a mountain and i didn't realize it and so japan is the land of the rising sun that's why their flag is the way it is because they're the easternmost country right and so what you do is you climb mount fuji at night it's kind of like a pilgrimage and you try and get there before the sun rises so that you can see the sunrise at the top of this, the biggest peak in Japan, which is a volcano. And so it's like, I didn't have food. Like I didn't eat. I had these candies called haichu and I had one sentence that I could say in Japanese, which is, which means life is beautiful, isn't it? And I would just like say that to folks. But at three in the morning when you're hungry and you're tired and you're on a mountain and there was like people, hella people because it's a pilgrimage and you want to give up and you look down and you're like, nah, (laughs) I'm not going that way. I can't go that way. That's kind of how life is when you're a poor kid. It's like, I know what that is. I'm not going back there. So all I can do is climb. It's the only thing, right? It's going forward and climbing. And that's how I talk about that in building a company. It's just that story has stuck with me because 
all I could do, I wanted to give up so bad. And all I could do was look down at my feet and literally say left, right, left, right. Yeah. Because it's so, that mountain is so big sometimes. And so yeah. all you can focus on is that step in front of you. I love that. And my question to you would be, and this is something, you know, I have conversations with like close friends, like my brother about too. you know, we talk a lot about how a lot of this shit is mindset to just be clear, right? It's really hard to be able to say, I'm going to have this type of mindset. An example of this is, you know, when I moved to New York, my brother helped me drive from Chicago to New York. And on the way there, we stopped by Gary, Indiana, where Michael Jackson's old house was, where all six of them grew up in this small itty bitty house. It is the, this pristine place, you know, but everything else around it is the hood. But I'm talking about like hood, hood, like dilapidated, everything for the most part is boarded up. And then you have people on the street, you have people that look like there's no hope. And the one thing that I'm always curious about when people are saying mindset this, mindset that, is they even have sociology reports on this as broken windows. When all you see is broken windows, when all you see is, you know, poverty, when all you see is that, how can you see anything beyond that? And it looked like, you know, you got exposure. You were able to, even the fact that you went to Paris, you knew to go to Paris, you knew to go to Tokyo, you knew to do all these dope things. But I'm always curious as to what was that thing in you that allowed you to say, I look back down, but it didn't scare me enough to go back down because it's easy. Like, it's kind of like when you climb up the ladder and you're a kid and you're like, you even got kind of high, but you're like, I'm gonna go back down. It's too scary. It's too scary. What is that part of you that you felt was driving you to say, I'm not because so many people do go back down? Yeah. I mean, I ask myself that all the time. I, there's in, in psychology, child psychology, they talk about resilience factors. They're called ACEs. And there was a lot of shit that went down in my childhood. And uh, a lot of people that are close to me didn't make it out. Right. And why am I the one that gets to make it out? Why? I don't have an answer for that. I think part of my drive is fear and insecurity of going back to that place. That's one thing. I think that's what made me leave was I was running, you know, like I had to get, get as far away as possible. I think now that I've done, you know, a lot of therapy and, and, you know, had my heart broken or whatever, I think now I can reflect on it differently. And now I've been able to kind of make it more healthy Um, but I don't have, I'm, whatever it is, I'm lucky that I have, there's like that switch, right? Of resilience and what makes you resilient versus your best friend who's an addict. My best friend from high school is still an addict. And, you know, I don't, I don't actually know, but whatever it is, I'm lucky. That's hundred percent. And yeah. (laughs) <laughs> no, that's that's it's not real. So deep, but no, that's real. And I, I, I ask that because this is an ongoing question for me is, you know, when we talk about entrepreneurship, a lot of times it's like you can give all the tactics, all the tricks, all the tips. But if 
that person doesn't have that attachment to that why to keep going, there is nothing in the world that is going to keep them going. And very similar to you, I had the, my, especially into entrepreneurship, it is, it is not a coincidence that I started my first company at 19 and my father passed away when I was 19. And there was a long journey with that. I was running away from everything. Um, so no, I appreciate you for that. Um, I'm just always curious as to what keeps people going because I mean, life, lifing is hard. <laughs> it is hard. And then you add entrepreneurship as another layer. It's even harder. So no, I appreciate you for that. Then you yeah. add on intersections of identity, which make it even harder. Like, listen, I get kicked in the teeth a lot and, and I give myself 24 hours to like feel it because mm-hmm. I need to pity myself for a little bit, lick my wounds, but then got to get back up because it's a lot of getting kicked in the teeth. Mm. and asking for more. <laughs> yeah. And I'm happy you brought that up too, because something I used to do when I was running, um, and what is it that um, Warren Buffett talks about is, you know, what gets you here won't get you there. Um, there's, I think there's certain cases like passion and things like that. But for the most part, like what got us here was that fear, and that running and that momentum, right? But once you get to a certain level of sophistication, you're like, those tactics don't work anymore because you have to sit with it. And that was one of the biggest issues for me was sitting with it. It was so uncomfortable. And I like that you give yourself 24 hours. Um, And I'm starting to do that with myself is if I'm just feeling like a stinker today, if I'm moody, letting myself be moody versus, you know, I feel like especially with women, especially with underserved communities, um, we don't get grace to be. We don't give grace to breathe. And that is so important. The only people that can allow us to do that is ourselves. So now I love that 24 hours. So you had this buildup. You experienced all the things. You ran. And you ran into the right direction. Um, And then you started this company, started into the consulting. Um, Before we dive into it, tell or actually, I want to understand what was the problem that you were solving for? So this comes down to really understanding how banks hire consultants and it gets really technical real quick, but essentially the way that people can be brought into an institution as a consultant or a consulting firm is quite challenging. And there's a lot of gatekeeping that happens and there's a lot of red tape and I didn't think that we were prepared for the gig economy to start pushing into the consulting space. I think when we talk about gig economy, it's often in kind of precarious type work um, and it's not included at the high end. And at the high end, oftentimes the systems that are in place um, are there for more commodified labor. And so I wanted to facilitate or create almost a consulting firm that functioned more like a cooperative of independent consultants. And so that was the original kind of way that I got in. Um, And I fortunately, because of my previous job, I'd grown so much in the company that, that I knew how to get into banks quickly. So, so I was really lucky in that way. Um, There's also a story there where I just, timing is sometimes uncanny where it's like, how did this happen? I don't know why this happened, 
but it was the perfect timing. So I had a client reach out to me just as I left a job and was like, where are you? I want your consultants. And six weeks later, I had a, an MSA with RBC Capital Markets. Um, and so that, that by the grace of that, allowed me to really launch into my own consulting firm. And I like that you brought up timing because a lot of times timing is so important. Like my first company was in the, the think of the real worlds, the tradesies, the fashion resale sites of the world before many of those kicked off. And we were definitely too early and we were doing it with a level of cryptocurrency before we even knew that was a word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we right. just got it virtual. Um, we were definitely too early and then maybe a year and a half later, we started seeing these sites pop up. Um, so what in particular about the timing, what was happening for it to be sticky at, at that, that point? Yeah. So what was happening is there, so originally what happened is uh, staffing firms and consulting firms kind of had reign of banks and you just needed to get a, a master service agreement with a client and then it was fine. But what started happening was they had a really good sense of what the headcount was on the FT, on the full-time side, but they had no idea who was working for them outside of FT. And so that comes with, you know, a lot of nepotism, a lot of cost control issues. And so what they, what they said is we need to have an understanding of at least our contingent workforce. So, so contractors, And they implemented these systems called vendor management systems, which are essentially a type of technology that aggregates the staffing firms and all of the requirements that go out. So it passes through the system and only the select suppliers are allowed to put resumes forward. And essentially it's the lowest paid recruiters who work the VMS in the staffing firms. And so they have 24 hours to turn it around they just do a bunch of keyword searches on resumes and put their strongest resume up front. And they don't actually have a sense of, of who's working, who has actually done this work and, and who is the right skill set for this requisition. And, and uh, it's just a law of numbers, right? Like they, the, you know, you throw a bucket of shit at the wall and something's going to stick. And so that's how it was functioning. And what I started seeing happening was it was failing to find expertise. So it's not finding, it's really good at commodified labor, as I said. So if you have temp or backfill, but I specifically worked in risk and regulatory, which is highly technical and requires people with significant education, oftentimes PhD math in math. And so what it was failing on was finding these people because they suddenly have rate cards that they have to stick to. And these people have a bunch of skill sets that push them outside of the rate card. And then, so if that's failing, then you have to go to consulting firms and you pay an arm and a leg for a consulting firm from you know EY or Accenture. And so there's this kind of gray area in between where, no, those independent consultants exist. They just were outside of the price range and the recruiters are not able to find them because they don't understand the business. And so mm-hmm. I was the the kind of, hey, I can't find this person and I don't want to go, I don't want to pay 500 bucks an hour from Deloitte. So Sophia, who do you have? And that's how I started building my roster. And fortunately, really the only thing that I did was, was tr- be transparent. So 
I ethics are really important to me and and not ripping people off. And so what's also happening at the same time is staffing firms are lying about their margin, underpaying people. And so you have these big markups. And all I did was say, hey, I'm going to be really transparent about my margin. I'm going to charge the lowest margin possible while still having a business. And I will walk you through the whole step of the way. If we need to go for renewals, I'm always going to be transparent about what that margin actually is. And that built a roster of consultants that were really, really good because they trusted me because I was transparent. And that's the only, like, transparency is so important everything. in business. It's and everything. Yeah. It's so integrity. that was important. Integrity is important. And um, the other thing that I did was instead of having recruiters who often don't come from the business, I paid people as recruiters. So I gave them a portion of my of my margin like you would pay a recruiter and they ended up being better recruiters than any recruiter that I've ever worked with because they've worked with these people and they know them and suddenly they're getting upside. Like I have some, some people who've been on contract for three years and the person that referred them is still collecting margin quarterly. The other thing that you brought up um, is the fact that you were able to have all these collection of experiences. And this is why I don't refer to competitors. I just think there are other players because there is no one that can replicate your unique experiences. So the reason you were able to go into these, these spaces and say, Hey, we have this very unique offering is because those are the collection of all the things you connected that no one else could ever replicate because no one could replicate. First of all, your upbringing, the jobs that you had, the way you had to climb up the ladder. And then through that, you were able to connect the dots. So I think that's so powerful. And it led you to this model that I'm really excited to dive into. And before we started recording, we talked about this a little bit, is often so many women, especially Latina women, um, I think I saw something with all um, Hispanic-owned businesses that 40% are in construction and 20% are in services. And I find this so fascinating because a lot of women tend to go into services first, but that doesn't mean it can scale. But often startup space makes services wrong, saying that can't scale, that can't scale. Here's two things that I see is very powerful with services that we even have with Get Shit Done founders is services A allows you to be your own investor because the service ends up allowing you to um, build up cash, understand what's working or not. And then the second thing, it's R&D. It allows you to understand what your customers are asking for, what really is the problem in the market. Then you identify what is that thing, then scale that thing. So can you walk us through how you were able to pinpoint in your services what would scale? I just got tired of how manual everything in consulting is. So from packaging a resume or a profile, sending it off, like you get someone's resume on Word, then you put it on your letterhead. It's just like invoices, timesheets. The only thing that's really automated is signing of contracts in a bank, which is, you know, banks are, are typically pretty automated, you'd think. Um, and so that was my first indication was as a salesperson, you know, how I, I was kind of at this point, I always knew I wanted to have a tech firm, but it became more and more solid and kind of kept growing in my head. But I was at this point where I had 
three significant financial institution clients. And the thing about having an enterprise is you can land and expand, which makes them really nice, right? So you get your first contract. And once you have an MSA, you can work anywhere in the institution globally. And so I was at this point where I was like, you know, I can start scaling this services business and start hiring people and um, building that sales funnel. And, you know, it would be a nice business. I it's, you know, make a six figures, more than six, not, not seven figures, but you know, you're making 200 grand, 250 grand a year. And it's like, this is dope. This is not something that I ever had before, but then you would still have to be doing the sales and managing the sales and doing all of that, or you could automate it. And, and what I was already kind of feeling was the broker is the problem. There's these intermediaries that are the problem. And I'm still, even though I'm transparent, I'm still an intermediary and what I keep harping on is the brokers need to lower those walls and, and we need to facilitate work with the, the firm, the consultant, and the hiring manager needs to be more equal and transparent, but I'm still kind of a broker. So how can I even reduce that more and create more transparency? And that kind of led me into um, the technology solution. And from there, I joined uh, the Smith School of Business, which is Canada's one of Canada's top business schools, depending on which ranking you're looking at, uh, and did a master's of management in innovation and entrepreneurship. And when I first started doing that, people were like, no, women think they need to get more education. Like you're an entrepreneur already. Don't worry about it. Like, what are you going to learn that you can't? But really what I was doing was every assignment I had was towards understanding this technology problem, doing research on it, doing primary research with a significant significant financial institution that as a, as a services business, I wouldn't have been able to like knock on their door and say, hey, will you do this research with me? It's a case study. Um, you're, you're exactly. Using it as a workshop. Yeah, exactly. And so I did all this research and all this work. So by the end of my program, I was ready to to really start launching and building the technology. Interesting. So and we'll, we'll get is... into the technology piece of it in terms of what were those components? Because I think a lot of people have questions around, you know, how do you skate? Like, OK, now what? What do you do? But I want to dig into um, the the pieces of funding it and getting those initial customers, which is really, really important. Um, so you, you talked about master service agreements, but I would love for you to walk through, you know, what did that look like initially to get there? And what I love about founders repetitively that we see from success is there are a couple components. And one of the biggest is selling. Founders who understand you need to sell or your company is going to die. And so in this particular case, you were consulting, you're doing master service agreements with these banks. So what does that mean? Like, can you walk us through what are those agreements? And then also, what is that process for securing that type of agreement? Because there's some good cash that comes with that, right? 100%. 100%. Even the agreement itself has a value of in the millions, right? Because you can close millions of dollars worth of, of business. Um, I guess I've been through kind of on the sales side, I started in transactional sales and staffing also operates on a transactional model that's sometimes relational. And what I realize is I hate transactional sales. I 
am a relationship builder. I have relationships that last. And again, it comes back to that integrity piece and building those relationships so that you can call on them later. Um, and they can call on you, which does happen. And so I realized that I hated the transactional part of staffing and I did not want to do that. And fortunately, because of the relationships that I'd built, I was able to break into enterprise a lot faster than most people. So that is a caveat is I had the relationships built first. Um, Oh, so you don't just go and try to pitch everyone (laughs) without actually talking to them. And I'm saying this as kind of a, a poke um, at founders, but also it's because I think we have gotten to this pitch culture, um, whether it's a start to, it's, or the shark tanks of the world where they make you feel like, oh, the way you get the deal is if you just go pitch like you're in a room full of people. But honestly, whether it's investors, whether it is sales, is people do business with other people. And it's typically not, you're just going to go into the room unless that's the, the purpose of the room is you're coming here to pitch. A lot of times they want to get to know you. It's a conversation. So I love that you brought that up because the best sales technique to me is establishing a relationship. 100%. And I actually don't believe in having sales titles. Like I hate business development, BDE, BDR, any type. I actually don't believe in it because- The thing about sales is the minute someone thinks that you are selling them, the minute a wall goes up and then your work is to break down that wall. But if you start without a wall and you start building the relationship and they, it's not a sale tactic and it's just like, Hey, I'd like to know what you're doing. This is what I'm doing. You know, how can we help each other? Like building that foundation, it makes a sale so much easier. And so that's really how I, I got a lot of my starts, but Going back to your MSA question, um, so a mass, in order to work with an enterprise, you have to have a vendor agreement, which is called a master service agreement. It outlines the relationship. Uh, it doesn't outline a specific contract, but it outlines the relationship and what you're going to do, how much insurance you need, what kind of security protocols you need, all of this kind of stuff. And those, it takes a long time to broker those. Typically, they say 18 months. And so there, there are a couple things that when I teach enterprise sales and I talk about it, that I, I talk about things that you need to be aware of. I think the biggest recommendation that I typically have is you need to get to know the drama of the institution. So you need to know who all the players are, who likes who, who doesn't like who, who collaborates with who, so that you can actually talk the same way that they can. How would you do that? What questions would you ask? I just, you know, you, when you're sitting down to meet someone, if you have a little bit of information, like, hey, I heard this project is going, are you involved in it? What's going on? I heard this is happening. And the more people feel like you are inside the organization and know the tea, the more people's wall is going to go down because you are getting it from somewhere, right? And then you can use that to leverage. Uh, I'm giving away all my secrets. Watch my bank clients not return my calls after. I this. love it. no. <laughs> but I think this is this is relationships in general because it's not like you're weaponizing it against them. You're using it's just it. You're as, in the know. Yeah, you're in the know, and you're you're leveraging it in order to actually provide better solutions for them. 
Exactly. 100%. And that's the relational aspect. It's not like I'm going to push the sale on you and then it's going to convert and we're never going to talk again. It's like, you know, are we going to work together now or 10 years down the line? Um, and, and just now I'm in the middle of closing another MSA at a big bank and I, the people internally didn't know who to broker with, but I knew the procurement person because he participated in my research. He has known me for, he's watched me. And so now I could call on him and he's been really helpful. And it, you know, I called him and I said, Hey, it's Sophia. And he knew who I was. Right. And so that'll facilitate the process of getting this MSA done smoother because everybody is invested in it and everybody knows who I am. And so it's not like procurement hates to be forced into doing something. So it's not like I'm hijacking the process and kind of going around the process. He's known me, he's known of me, and he can facilitate Mm. that for me. In enterprise sales, I talk about the three-legged stool. So you really need to know who everybody you need to have in the room is. And sometimes the stool is like this, this, uh, one of the deals I'm working on right now, there's probably five or six different people from different groups that I'm kind of bringing together. You kind of have to be like an octopus where you get your tentacles into all of the different spaces, but you need to know who the people to make a decision are. And there's three critical people that, that are involved. One, the person who's going to use or consume or, um, be your client there's the person who's going to sponsor you so that's svp level they have to sign off on the msa that's usually someone's boss or boss's boss's boss um and so you need to know who that is because unless that person that is your you know original point of contact unless they have power within the institution to say hey i need this msa done with their svp it's going to be hard. So you need to have that relationship um, with SVP. And then the third person is if you're going through procurement, you need to know who your sourcing person is and they need to like you because p- procurement and HR function very similarly in that they're the gatekeeper. And if you've pissed them off, they're going to throw up roadblocks. Mm, I love this. My follow-up to that would be, because I think this is where founders get stuck, is the getting the in, right? So you know, we're going to have an event soon around for, Fortune fi- or Fortune 100 deals. Like, how do you get into the crack the code, get in and convert and close the deal? Um, and a lot of this uh, is about relationships at the at the end of the day. How are you able, if there's that three-legged stool, which I love that analogy, how do you go about setting up those relationships when, A, it's already hard to get in the door, but B, once you get in the door, how do you maneuver it? So, can you walk us through what you've done? And especially from someone that didn't come from means, didn't have that example growing up. So you had to figure this out on your own. I think that is so much more exciting. So walk us through, how are you able to build that stool in the process? So what I see a lot in founders and also in sales salespeople is deference. So... And sometimes this goes against me because I don't kowtow enough, but I'm Latin, like, and I'm Chilean, which is, comes with its own history, but we don't bend. (laughs) Honey, some of my favorite friends are Latina and they're just like, oh no, honey, this is going to happen. (laughs) So that's a thing. But, um, I think that you have to get it out of your head that you are 
interrupting somebody or you are um, whatever that is where it's like you are inferior to a person. And when you don't come from means, these people at the C-suite or EVP or whatever, you know, senior, senior people that in, in, in my case that are essentially running the economy, um, that they're just the same as you. And in fact, um, one, don't waste their time, but also come at them as an equal. And I often see people who are like, but how, how, how did you get in, in front of the treasurer of the bank? And like, I called him like, what, what do you mean? (laughs) Like, (laughs) I'm that bitch. (laughs) What are we talking about? (laughs) So this has been an interesting thing as I am on the tech side and I'm, I'm like brokering big deals right now. And a lot of people are like, you know, you got, how did you even get to me? How did you? And I'm like, because I just picked up the phone and I'm offering some, one, you need to know that you are the shit and that your product is the shit. And if it's not, if you do not believe that it's the best thing for them, then you should not be calling them and you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. And they you wouldn't, find they're not going to believe you. They won't believe you if you don't believe you. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so, so you have to know that you are calling them to help them, um, but also to be aware that they're busy. They get lots of people calling them all the time. And also you're going to be rejected a lot, but so this, this is where it's really good that I came from hardcore sales and cold calling executives. So that was that first cheap ass job that was awful as booking seats to conferences and and talking about specific themes so i would jump from topic to topic but i'd have to be able to talk at their level about what's important to them and that was a really good skill that i built but it's i mean you're gonna have to cold call and i think a lot of founders are scared of cold calling a lot of folks are Mm. scared of people that that have this much power but at the end of the day like those are the people that can make your life those are the people that you can be grateful forever or two and, and will be able to call up and, and say, Hey, this is what I'm doing now. And they're excited because they gave you that start. And so I really, mm. really believe that it's always a no, if you don't ask, Ooh, you know, I love that. And everybody has to start somewhere, right? Cause sometimes, you know, it's really easy to assume that some people that are in those positions got there from nepotism, which some of them absolutely do. Um, but there are plenty of people that came from nothing that got in those positions. And oftentimes I feel are not, are not tapped into that much. Um, so my question to you would be following up on this. And I love this. This is actually taking us away from the original questions that I had for you, but I want to dig more into the sales piece because I have told y'all over and over on this podcast is one of the main themes of the founders who are successful is their ability to sell. If founders did not come from that selling background, what are some things they can be doing to practice? Because I know it's like there's that 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 fear too of oh I don't want to like pitch someone and I fuck it up with like the big Kahuna right. So I'll give an example of something I did. Um, you, even though when I was younger I did sales, I was like in retail, and then I had a stylist job that was like mostly commission and whatever, but I continued to build that muscle. Um, and I would go and, um, volunteer for politicians that I believed in and go to their call centers because you know how politicians are making or getting donations. 
Yeah, they have volunteers calling on their behalf. And let me tell you, it was at least for me, because I I like building relationships with people. At first, it's still a little nerve wracking, like, damn, someone's going to hang up my face. I remember having a conversation with someone who's like very Trump, very whatever. But we had a good conversation. And the guy, even though he didn't believe in my candidate, he actually ended up donating because he was like, I like that you gave me some of the issues that she's talking about that I actually believe in. So I'm going to donate to this. And that that was when I was building my last company to help me stay fresh. So what tips Mm -hmm. would you have, given that you already came from sales background, for founders that don't come from that, that they can be doing to build that confidence? Because there is that nerve wracking like, oh, I'm going to get a rejection. And you will. You get rejection. Um, but what what do you feel they can be doing to build that confidence muscle? Um, there are a couple of things. I think for sure, something I hear a lot is I'm just not good at sales. And it's like... That's not true. The people, you have friends? If you have friends, you had to sell them on being a friend. Exactly. <laughs> and, well, and also like, I don't know. Anyone who's like, I love sales. I love cold calling. I'm like... No, you don't. No. Or, or I don't want you on my team because you are too pushy. Um, I think you never get used to cold calling. You never, it never is easy. It gets easier for sure, but you're just going to start calling higher and higher levels if you're in enterprise. One of the things that I think is really important to remember is that sales is iterative. So you don't know what's going to work. It's like marketing. It's like anything. You need to consistently be changing your pitch and evolving based on what works and what doesn't, doesn't work. And so you need to be testing that out early on by having conversations with people. So if you're, I agree, you should not go to the big kahuna first until you have your story. Um, but what you can do is go to senior managers who will divulge information and let you know, or may not be happy or whatever. Senior managers have no power, but you can start cold calling and, and just getting the, the jitters out really, and getting Mm. used to hearing yourself talking, getting used to pitching, record your pitches, I think are really important. And also, know your probing questions. I think a big mistake people make is they don't, when they actually have someone that they don't probe enough to understand, even if it's a no, like this person is not going to be a salesperson, but I can still probe them and get information. Mm. So understanding your probing questions and, and not being afraid to ask them if you actually have somebody, because sometimes that information is what you need to close that deal. I love this. And would love you to walk through how would they know what to ask, right? And of course, they want to sell the deal. They want to get into these companies. But, you know, a a lot of this is an art and a science. And the art, I think, is around what you know to ask to divulge that information. Um, But what are some of the standard questions that whenever you go in, and and this is going to vary from industry to industry, but I think there's foundational questions to ask that I think across the board work, what are top ones you've seen be really important for you to understand the dynamics, whether this is a good fit, but also how to get information you need to then pitch them the right things? Yeah. So this comes down to, are we talking about an MSA or an SOW? So once you have the MSA, then 
every contract you sign for a project is called an SOW and that outlines the terms of delivery. And so when you're going for an MSA, you need to understand what that enterprise process is, who you need to sell, who those key players are. But it's not really about money and budgets. It's about what's going on, what what you can get through. Um, the SOW is where you get into the budgets and the real nitty gritty. So, so you need to know what the sales process is regardless. And so that's the first question you need to find out is within this enterprise I'm trying to close, what's the MSA process? You know, what's their supplier risk process? What kind of assessments do I need to go through? What kind of insurance do I need to have? All of that kind of stuff. Senior manager is not going to know that, but you can get to know what some of the challenges are, where the pain points are, what's not working, who's failing, who the consultants are that are already working, if we're talking specifically about services, because that gives you the story of how you can angle in and how you can position yourself against what's not working. And so you really need to start knowing very quickly what the process is. Then you need to know uh, what piece you're going to go after. And then you need to know what's the budget tied to that. Um, so that you can go in fully equipped when you're talking to the actual decision maker. And so really what it comes down is, what do I need to get a deal done? Who's signing off on this? Is it a decision maker and a budget decision, a budget decision maker, content decision maker? What kind of decision makers? Who are the stakeholders? All of this kind of stuff. Um, and sometimes if you're too direct, people will be cagey. So you have to know how to how to influence that into conversation, right? Like, oh, I heard so-and-so is is running this project. Are you involved in him? Do you liaise, liaise with them? Oh, who on your team is doing that? Oh, it's not you, your business as usual. Great, who's on the project side? I heard that this person is doing it. Do you, you know, it's this is where having that knowledge and the more knowledge you can collect in an enterprise, the more you get your tentacles in, the easier it is to close a deal. So the deal that I'm in the middle of closing right now I've been working for 10 years. I have relationships that have gone back 10 years and um, now I can call on them and bring those people together because it's the right time. Mm, I love this. And I love the fact that you basically just gave them their enterprise sales strategy is there's three buckets (laughs) here. So rewind that and make your outline based on what she just said and create questions around At each of those stages, what do I need to be probing for based on this type of deal in order to move forward? So you talked about, okay, we have the MSA, we've established some SOWs. So a big piece of scaling is around operationalizing. And this is where a lot of companies don't scale is because everything is still so manual. So going back to what you said earlier, you're like, all of this was so manual. I could be at like 100 to 250 a year. But if you continue to rely on people to do that work, you'll never be able to scale because literally the definition of, of, of scale is being able to increase your revenue without increasing your expenses. And inherently, if you have to keep adding bodies, you're not to, in order to get more right. revenue in, you can't scale. Um, so what were those key things? And I think this brings us to the technology, right? Mm-hmm. What were those key things you realize after you've done a few MSAs and SOWs that you're like, we need to scale this piece in order for this business to get to the next level? So can you walk us through this technology component that you're going hard on now? Yeah, for sure. So 
I would say this is why investors don't like services, right? Because it can weigh the business down. Because of that, you know, margins are pretty stagnant. Um, you can't really reduce much because you have to add bodies. And so early on, I got that a lot. Like when, I, like in order for us to invest in you, you're going to have to divest of the services business, which is I've, fine. Like fine, whatever. Yes. Say that again, because I think for founders and services, they hit this roadblock. So they want you to divest of your services piece because what? They want you to divest of it because they consider it risky is really what it yep. comes down to. And they're yep. trying to manage their risk. Everything is about risk optics. Yeah. At least from my you perspective. Risk optics? <laughs> I am a risk consultant or like come from risk background. So I look at things through that lens. A lot of it, a lot of the, the mentality around investors is how can I reduce my risk, but also optimize as much as possible so that I can have that 10x return or 100x return yes. or whatever they're looking for. Um, so, so I was at this point where it was like, all right, I can go one of two ways. And I chose tech. Um, and so I was lucky enough to do research with financial institutions. I started with a question, which is like, do we need to segment these deals better because it's not automated and it's going to start bottlenecking? That was where I started. And my research was actually inconclusive. There was not a real consensus around it, but I found something even bigger. And so this is where when people talk about primary research, how important it actually is. And and I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't gone to the master's and you don't need to do a master's to do primary research, but you also need to be open to what you think is true may not be true and there may be a better nugget. And so out of that, came a pretty significant find, which led to a patent. And that is kind of the, the crux of what we're building on and talking about right now. It's not public yet. So publicly facing, we are a consulting management system. But essentially in the research, what I found was after a contract is, is signed in procurement, it becomes the hiring manager's job to manage that contract, which is fine. But if it doesn't go well, what are the mechanisms as a risk consultant, right? I'm looking at what are the mechanisms if something fails and that person just won't hire them again. And I was like, but what happens if that person leaves? Well, that knowledge goes with them. But how are you managing your suppliers if you don't have any kind of data on their performance and what's going well, what's not going well? And that led me into this area of, of risk called supplier risk, which is uh, at the forefront of of kind of the big regulatory pr pushes right now is how are we managing our supply chain? And I think the pandemic, again, another right time thing where it's like the pandemic has increased our knowledge of how interconnected the supply chain is and how important supplier risk is. And the current way that we manage supplier risk is, is through assessments up front. And then we don't really track our suppliers. So that there we figured out a, a way to essentially move supplier risk from a qualitative framework to a quantitative framework, which is super mm. geeky. But that was our big discovery uh, and led to a patent, which has led to significant conversations at very high levels of 
regulatory bodies and banks and whatnot. I love this. And I love this because for the founders who started with services, I think there's so much to be said of how powerful it is at the beginning because you are able to have insights into a particular market because your services company is R&D. It is a lab. It is a lab for you to discover what works, what doesn't, because when you are in tech already and scaling so fast, it's not equipped to be. I was just listening to something recently about Facebook Marketplace is that they took so much share from Craigslist, but now they started scaling out all these unintended consequences because they didn't look at the data, which with services, you can be so close to it to say, wait, there's all these scammers. There's people that are violent, yet now you gave them a platform with more access. Now you're perpetuating their reach. So I think that's where services become such an ally to your your a catalyst to scale because you're able to pinpoint specifically, this is what we can do and what we can scale out and be so good at it better than anybody else because you have such a unique position, then leverage that to go on and scale with a technical component. So what I have typically seen from enterprise founders uh, is that the more of a SME you are, the stronger you the stronger the business case you're able to make and that can give us that can give us leverage and so your services business is what's equipping you with that expertise and and it's also giving you the capital to be able to do what you need to do to to get to from a services business to tech because you are more most intimately involved with the painful problems that exist and, mm. and that's the R&D component that you're talking about. That's the primary research is like, I think this is it. I think this is the problem. This is the problem I feel when I'm doing this, but I'm going to go out to my clients and I'm going to do some research because I'm close to them. I already have that relationship. They're right there. And yes, there's bias that that is included with people who will decide to work you, with you versus those who won't. But you know, at least it's it's a little bit of feedback. And if you can kind of broaden that and, and reduce that bias, that's better. But it is absolutely the way that we can create strength with women founders is by being experts. And there are still going to be men who mansplain, like mm-hmm. <laughs> who tell you, you know, what, what you already know, but at least you have that strength within you to know the truth of, of, you know, whatever field you're in. And, and from there it creates a really strong, um, position to be able to move towards the goals that you have in tech. And also being clear that you being your own investor is one of the most powerful things, but also having customers, your number one investor will always be your, your customer. And the fact that, and I think is a leg up is when you're in those early stages and you're not broke, because you're waiting on a hope and a prayer that someone's going to write you a check. The fact that you have services and you got money coming in, honey, that is nothing to be shameful about because there's too many stories of people saying that they're sitting on someone's couch. And I mean, I did that at some point, but not everybody that's grown as fuck can do that. So let's be clear. It I'm is too a bougie vehicle. for that now. <laughs> right. <laughs> To all, like, we're just like, I'm not at that place. And, and they actually have shown this, that people that are in their forties and up 
tend to be the most successful entrepreneurs. And so I, I think there's just so much to be said about services. And I feel like to be the catalyst to scale. And I think you articulated that so well, but I would love to dive in to more about you and just advice you have for founders around what you've already learned. And there's so much more you're going to learn because you're just getting started, even though you've been doing this for a minute. Um, But what do you feel thus far has been one of the biggest mistakes you've made that has become one of the best lessons for you as a leader today? This is probably not connected to business, but, and it's probably quite pessimistic, but I think you need to be aware that the closer you are to something real, the more folks are going to try and screw you. Honey, that is a word. Um, For you though, how do you stay focused when that, because it's already, entrepreneurship is already lonely um, and and actually, there's a lot of lows too, and it is very easy to get lower and lower when you feel like there is no one in your corner. So, what keeps you going when that happens? Um, so I think early on, what I did was I I tried to include people who are close to me, uh, who had skills or who I thought could take on pieces. And I didn't vet them how I should have. And then you get like early, early on, I had a best friend from childhood who we started talking about the tech piece. And, you know, he they suddenly wanted, he brought in three dudes. I was paying for early tech. This is like early, early on. Um, they said they had it managed. Uh, and eventually what happened is I started to get a little bit of traction. This is super early. So not even the traction that I'm at now, thank God. But uh, they were all like, okay, we each want 25%. (laughs) That's cute. Right? Right? (laughs) They tried it. (laughs) (laughs) And I pushed back and I actually had to walk away from, from code because no. First of all, you want me to keep 51% because we need somebody in control. Absolutely. And supplier diversity, which we haven't talked about, is is the key to getting into enterprise. Another key to getting into enterprise. If you're certified, you can get access to big ass companies if you are certified as a diverse supplier. And I have a trifecta. I'm queer, Latina. And so you want me to have 51% for as long as possible, but they didn't see it that way. So that I went through some heartbreak. I've gone consistently gone through heartbreak. I think what I learned out of it is one, I bring people on milestones now. So you want to join the team. Great. I'm going to pay you your value. You set your term. I will pay you your value on a milestone. We're going to see if we can work together. Mm. Ooh, I love that. Yeah, you want a piece of it? Great, but you're going to have to earn it because this is my everything. I put everything into it and I'm not going to jeopardize that and I'm not going to create risk of like later down investors not wanting to invest if if I got someone on my cap table that's not even there, right? So so that is one thing that I really do. Um, As a non-technical founder, one of the things that I did was hire an enterprise architect to design enterprise level architecture so that we can build towards that and, and have 
it be easier when we go through that MSA, pro that procurement process so that, you know, you can, because it can take a lot. And if you don't have the right infrastructure, what happens with fintechs is they don't have the right security infrastructure in place. And then they have to go back and do a lot of rework. And then that costs the money and they haven't closed the deal yet. And so I didn't want to run into that. So I hired him on a milestone. Again, the same thing happened. I find technical people when you're non-technical will often try and take advantage. They will try it. They will try. This is why having conversations is so important. And so, you know, he wanted more than I was willing to give. And I, it was a no from me, but we just walked out and the contract was finished. And from there I had enterprise architecture that I could hand to junior or, or, you know, newer developers. And it's a, you know, it outlines what they need to do and where they need to go. And I am okay from a technical standpoint because we have it mapped out and I don't have, I still don't have a, a CTO and I lead the technical team as a non-technical founder. And some people would say that that's risky, but, but our architecture is, I've had people look at it and it's, you know, enterprise level. And so that mm. saved me a big headache because the problem with, you know, people who are coming in as CTO is everybody wants to make decisions or change things or do things their way. And no, this is our plan. And we made technical decisions based on information that we know is true from a bank perspective, and we're going to stick to it. And this is our, our roadmap of where we're going. And so that has been one of the best decisions that I made to get me to where I am now. My final question to you, because mm -hmm. Get Shit Done, we're all about I mean, we're filling the revenue pipeline. This is about generational impact. It's about scaling generational wealth. Um, but the, the problem today is that women founders, we're, especially in the U.S., make up nearly 50% of entrepreneurs. But 4% of total business revenues come from us. And that's not a way we're going to build wealth. We got to fill the pipeline. And so already with your services company, you already became a, a million-dollar company. And then the sky's the limit now because – now you pinpointed the scale component, which is so exciting. So what are you focused on today to grow your business revenues to the next level? Yeah. Um, I would actually even reframe this to, to be what am I doing it for myself to grow that for myself, but also to impact? What's my impact on those those women as well? And, and that is a second part of the question that I would answer. My goal is for the regulator to say, this is what we need to be doing. This is the best thing out there. Nobody has thought of this. Uh, and for the banks to have to join. That's that's a big ass, pushy ass goal. They will goal. have to join. <laughs> not, not, will you sign me up? They will have to. That reminds me of Zell. Zell did this very well. They got their consumer to say, no, we like this. This needs to be a part of it. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. So, so that's the, the strategy. So how do you get there? What is that path? What are the small, again, if you're climbing that mountain and you're looking at your feet in front of you, what is the left foot, right foot? What is, you can eat an elephant a bite. My people on my team are probably laughing because I say this kind of stupid, corny ass shit, but I'm like, you can eat an elephant a bite at a time. What's the bite in front of you? Don't yes. worry about the entire elephant, but what's the bite in front of you and what's the bite after that? And so setting up those stepping stones to get to where you need to go is what I'm doing to create that. But then on top of that, um, what we're now creating is a supplier market where 
suppliers will be able to be seen and visible, which helps small businesses who have struggles with enterprise sales uh, because they don't have the reach that, let's say, an EY or Deloitte has. And so they will be visible. Hiring managers will be able to see them. And we're building out a component looking at supplier diversity to ensure that diverse companies have greater access and and banks, well, all enterprise have, they get tax write-offs in the U.S. for supplier diversity spend. So they're trying to always increase their their diverse spend so that they can get that tax, tax benefit. But oftentimes they don't know who the firms are. And it's often services businesses uh, that are minority businesses. And so if I can create better visibility that is opening the door for more businesses to be able to scale in, inside enterprise. And, and that's really the goal here is, is how can we do that? How can we make sure that we are keeping that door open? I love that. So based on that goal, and I, I love the you rising together, especially when you're bringing other people along, it's not just about your organization because we're about that. It gets you done. It's like, I don't care how many women are in the room. It's about what are they? What are we accomplishing together? What's the impact um, that we can collectively have? So, how can we support you in what you're currently focused on? I, for the first time ever, I have a sponsor in, inside a bank um, that's really driving a deal, and this is a woman of color, a, a black woman, and I have never in my entire life had someone sponsor me, and it's the first time I've been thinking about this and realizing what that impact is and what that looks like. And so I think it's really important that we start sponsoring each other, even with whatever little piece we have. Right. And so it's less about what I need, but what we can collectively do because right now, unless you're a bank, (laughs) you know, at the SVP level, listening up, I'm, I'm happy to talk about a little bit more detail about how we're going to change supplier risk, but, Other than that, what I would say is, how are you in your community making sure that you're sponsoring businesses who are just a little bit behind you? And I think if we all are doing that, we will all get together and it's going to have to be collective because you know that that's exactly what a yacht club is. Like you don't think like on the golf course, that's what's happening. That's how sponsorship happens. And we just haven't been privy to it. And so the answer is, what are we all going to be doing to make sure that we are pushing people forward and increasing that spend across the board? I work with as many diverse suppliers as I can. I try to hire people. Like, it's all in everything you do. And so that would be my answer is, is do it at a community level. Thank you so much for listening to Get Shit Done. We hope you got the traction tips you need to grow your company on your own terms. If you want to learn more traction tips like these from Badass Women Entrepreneurs Weekly, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, Queen, show us some love by rating and reviewing this podcast. This really helps us reach and serve more women like you in slaying their way to traction. And if you're looking for more support on your scaling journey, head on over to shegetsshitdone.com slash join, where you'll become a part of the movement of women entrepreneurs giving 4% the middle finger. Until next time, queen, I'm Alex Batdorf reminding you, you got this. Now go out there and get shit done.